Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. When we read the scripture, we need to understand that the chapters and the verses are not inspired. They weren't written with chapter and verse. Just the way that you would write a letter to someone you love in a faraway country or something. You, you don't put numbers on, on your, your sentences. And the, the Bible wasn't written that way either. Those things were added. I've got a few stats for you here. Uh, the chapters were added in the 13th century by a man named Stephen Langton. He divided the Bible into chapters in the year A.D. 1227. Langton was a professor at the University of Paris and later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. The verses were added in the 16th century by Robert Stephanus, a French printer who divided the verses in his Greek New Testament and published it in 1551. So 300 years between the chapters and the verses. Uh, the first Bible with chapter and verse divisions uh, the first entire Bible in which these chapter and verse divisions were used was Stephen's edition of the Latin Vulgate in 1555. And the first English New Testament to have both chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible in 1560. Fortunately, later on, Jewish scholars did the same thing with the Old Testament. And so we need to understand that while the chapter and verses that are in the text can be helpful for reference... And they can be helpful for recall and finding things quickly. Um, they're not there for us to pick and choose verses. You don't go to a passage and read it alone. Because if you do, you can't understand it. It would be like me having a conversation with Aggie and then quoting one sentence that she said and building my entire message off of it as if that one sentence could be understood out of context. You can't do that with the Word of God either. And so if we want to really understand what Paul's talking about when he speaks to Timothy, we have to understand the context. We need the history and we need the context of the whole letter. So one of the things I would encourage you to do sometime this week is, and this is usually the way, anytime I preach, this is usually the way that I approach um, my, my sermon preparation from the very beginning. Whatever passage uh, is the focal text. I go and I read, if it's, a, if it's a large book in the scripture, I'll at least read several chapters before and several chapters after. But if it's a, if it's a shorter one, like an epistle, I'll read the entire thing. I'll t- find a, a, um, a more modern English translation, like the New Living Translation or something like that, uh, that, that when I read it, it sounds more conversational. And then I'll read it from start to finish so that I hear it as a whole. And I hear it in without all the technicals. Now, when I go and study, I'll study some other translations that are more scholarly. But when I get a first read of a, of a passage, I'll go and read the entire book. And I'll read it uh, so I can hear it all in context. And then I begin to pick it apart. And that's what I kind of want to do for you today is set up the context of what's going on. See, uh, we said before that Paul... Uh, he, he trained and discipled Timothy and he left Timothy as a pastor at the church in Ephesus. And Timothy was a young man. Uh, Paul viewed him as a son. And one of the things about the book of second Timothy is this was written while Paul was in prison. Now Paul went on several missionary journeys. And if you'll notice, we read in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, we read about Paul leaving the church of Ephesus and telling the men there, the elders there that he knew he would never see them again. Paul, that was that discussion from Paul in Acts chapter 20 was about 10 years prior to the book of 2 Timothy. And Paul didn't know, we, we don't really know how Paul knew, except that the Bible says that Paul said the Holy Spirit revealed it to him, that he was to go on this journey, and that when he did, he'd never see them again. And that in every city that he went to on this journey, he was going to be imprisoned. And he was going to suffer persistently, repeatedly. And the the Holy Spirit told Paul these things. And Paul left them. And they were all heavy hearted because they were not going to see him again. 
And so then we get to the end of Paul's journey and he's been in prison many times and he's in a cell and he's awaiting his execution. Tradition tells us that, that Paul was martyred. Uh, I, I think the tradition is that he was beheaded. Um, you can check up on that and see if I'm right or wrong, but um, I, I don't know that we know exactly how it happened, but that's the tradition. And Paul knows that he's awaiting execution. And he writes this one last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And if you can imagine the dying words of a father to his son, that's the context of 2 Timothy. And Paul says to his son, if you read it in context, read the whole letter, he starts off with this father voice wanting his son to know how much he's loved and cherished and how much he means to him as his son. And then he goes into the teacher mode and he begins to say, now listen, Timothy, here's some important things. Don't forget these things. You really need to know this and make sure you do this and make sure you do this and make sure you do this. And then he goes back to the emotional plea of one who's about to face his own death. And he says, please, I beg of you, Timothy, come and visit me soon. I need you. And you can hear, if you read in context the letter, you can hear Paul's voice as he goes from one change to another. As he speaks his dying words to his son in the faith. And that's the context of 2 Timothy. As we look at this particular passage, we see that even more specific, there are some false teachers in the midst of the congregation. There's some heresy being taught. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who've been teaching that the resurrection already happened. Now, we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but one of the things I can tell you that's really important about doctrine is, and, and if you ever study the cults, you'll see this very quickly. Keep this in mind. The first question to ask yourself about whether this is a Christian sect or denomination or whether this is a cult is what do they say about Jesus Christ? Because some cults say Jesus is an incarnation of Michael the archangel. Some cults say that Jesus is not God, but he's a man. And they had a physical birth and death just like you and I. Some, uh, some say some heresies, uh, some cults, uh, even in, in the New Testament times, said that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, that he appeared as flesh, but it was all an illusion, that, he was, that it was only spiritual. It's called the Gnostic heresy, that nothing is actually really real. Everything is perception. And so he appeared as real, but he, wasn't, he was just spirit. And that's heretical as well. Um, some, some cults will say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and of you and I. And I saw some eyebrows. I can tell you what cult that is if you want to know. But uh, it's, it's very prominent, and they look and sound Christian. And if you talk to them, they'll use the same terminology, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they'll, and they'll talk to you about the, those things. But if you, if you have to really dig into the details, and you'll find out they're not Christian. Because Jesus, in their mind, is the brother of Lucifer and of you and I. And so what a denomination or what a group, what a religious group says about who Jesus is, is the number one identifier of whether or not it's a cult. Number two is what's the means of salvation? What's the means of salvation? If salvation has anything to do with works, it's not orthodox Christianity. If salvation has anything to do with your performance, it's not the gospel. It's heresy. And then the third thing is the resurrection. What do they say about the resurrection? And we don't know exactly what they said, except that somehow they taught that the resurrection had already happened. And that was heretical. And, and, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus is important to sound doctrine. The, the, the dual identity that Jesus had, 100% God, 100% man, his divinity, and his manhood, all that's important. It's a paradox. We don't understand it completely, but that's okay because you don't really understand water even though you think you do, right? We, scientists can say, you know, H2O is a combination of these atoms and these molecules and all that. But really, honestly, honestly, do we really understand the creation? We observe it. 
but we don't really understand it. We can't recreate it. We can't manufacture it from nothing. God can. That doesn't make any sense to our finite minds. So, so it doesn't have to be perfectly explained. We have to understand what the word says and, and, and base it on that. So, so all that's important. And Paul says to Timothy, there are false teachers in the midst. They're infiltrating the teachings of the apostles. And they have, not only have they started these controversies, but they have strained relationships in the body. And they've even turned some people away from faith in Christ. Now, let me tell you how Jesus feels about this. Jesus said in reference to children, if any of you leads one of these little ones astray, it would be better for him that a millstone, this is a giant stone for grinding grain, that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be thrown to the bottom of the sea. That's what Jesus thinks about people who lead others astray from the truth of the gospel. And so... Paul says, false teachings in your midst, and there's a problem here. And the main purpose of his letter is to exhort Timothy to protect the church against false teachers and to pursue personal holiness. So the problem we're looking at today is false teaching in the church. Paul tells Timothy, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and what they've done to the body. And then he tells us the solution. And the solution is to be set apart. And that's the theme of our series, to be set apart. Depart from iniquity is what he says. Let's look at that passage in verse 19. Uh, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. When Paul says that, notice the quotes says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Quote, the Lord knows those who are his. And quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul is not saying his own words. He's quoting. Where's he quoting? He's quoting from Numbers chapter 16. See, Paul was a Pharisee. And one of the things the Pharisees did is they had to memorize. They had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. They probably memorized more than that, but I know they memorized the first five and they they had to be able to recite it. So Paul could quote these things and he's quoting number 16. And if we look at number 16, you you may or may not know about this story, but Paul is making reference to a story called um, called Korah's Rebellion. Now in the Old Testament, uh, God called Moses to lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt and they saw the parting of the Red Sea, they got across on dry ground, and then after they got across, the armies of Egypt were, uh, were, were covered in the, in the waters and drowned. They were rescued. They were now, no longer slaves, but they were free people in a free land learning how to live like free people, but they still lived like slaves. And so God appointed Moses as their leader, and they were supposed to follow Moses as Moses heard from God directly. Now, at some point... They established, uh, God gave them the commands to establish a tabernacle and he set the Levite tribe apart for himself to be the priestly tribe and, and they took care of the offerings in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the incense offerings and all those sorts of things. And, and after a while, and this happened on more than one occasion, but after a while there was a group of people led by a guy named Korah who was a Levite who said, you guys have gone too far. Moses and Aaron, we're tired of this. We're tired of you telling us what to do because you're not the only ones who are holy. All of God's people are holy. We're holy. We're in the priestly tribe. We're holy. And we're not going to listen to you telling us what to do all the time. We don't think you, we think you've gone too far. And if you look in number 16, verse five, Moses responds to Korah and says, quote, the Lord will show who is his. And this is what Paul's quoting. The Lord knows who, who are his. The Lord will show who are his. And as the story goes on, Moses instructed the next day for all of the uh, 250 Levite men who were following Korah in his rebellion to take their uh, censers, their, their, their fire sticks, and burn incense on the altar the next day. The incense in the Old Testament, uh, in the tabernacle, represented the prayers of God's people. And basically, we're going to petition God through prayer with incense. 
make your incense offering. All 250 of you. And me and Aaron, we're going to do the same thing. And the Lord will show who is his. And when they offered their incense, God answered. Now, remember in the Old Testament, and when they were in, in the wilderness, God led them as a pillar of cloud or smoke during the day. They saw a physical manifestation of the presence of God in their midst through this cloud, this column of, of, of smoke. And then in the night, as a column of fire. And this pillar of cloud appeared after they offered the incense on the altar. And God, in that cloud, spoke to Moses and Aaron. Now the others around, they, they couldn't understand what God was saying because at some point earlier in the, in, in the story, after Moses led them out of Egypt, uh, God, uh, Moses said, God wants to speak to, to his people. So prepare yourself, get yourself ready, gather at this place on this day and do all these things. And when you get there, God's going to speak to you. And when God spoke, they were so terrified at the sound of his voice that they said, no, Moses. And they closed their ears. They said, Moses, we can't listen. If we listen to God, we will die. You speak to God for us. We can't handle it. They were terrified. And this is the same cloud that appears and the same voice of God. They could not understand what God said, but Moses and Aaron could hear the voice of God. And God said to Moses, have the people separate themselves from the rebellion. Have the people depart from iniquity because I'm about to consume them. And the story goes that Moses told the people, you need to separate yourself from these wicked people, move away from them and don't even touch their tent. And all of those who were in rebellion, they stayed with their tents. And Moses declared, he said, he knew what God had told him and they didn't hear it. So he said, I'm warning you now, you need to move away from them. And here's the word of God. If these men die a natural death as other men, then I'm a false prophet. But if something else happens to them, you better steer clear. Because God will not tolerate this rebellion. And at the moment he finished speaking, and I'm paraphrasing these things, but at the moment that he finished speaking, what happened is the ground opened up and swallowed all 250 men and their families and their belongings and their homes and then closed back up. And they witnessed it. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, there are false teachers in the camp. And your instruction is the Lord knows those who are his. Depart from iniquity. Separate yourself from false teachers. Notice this. If you look at the text, he uses this word, seal, He says, the foundation of the Lord is firm, and this is his seal. The word seal uh, in the Greek, and I'm not going to try to say these Greek words, but I put the respellings up there so you could see how they're pronounced. But the Greek word for seal is the same as a signet ring or an impression on a seal with wax. It literally means the proof. In in, uh, biblical times, a king or a ruler would have a signet ring with a seal on it, a symbol that represented his authority. And if you got some kind of document, it would be like having a notary stamp or something, but it came from the king. And if you got a document or a decree sent to you and and it had the seal of the king or the ruler, then that says, this is on the authority of the king. Not the authority of the messenger, the authority of the king. And the seal, the proof of God's authority is this. He told them, first of all, that that the Lord knows those who are his. And then he said, depart, which means to lead away or to abstain, to desert, to draw away, leave, to flee, to shun, to revolt. He tells them, depart from iniquity which in the Greek is the same as doing wrong, injustice, unrighteousness of heart and life, wickedness, hurt, wrongfulness of character, life, or act. God says the sign, the proof that these people are mine is that they will depart 
from those things that are unholy and unwholesome. They will separate themselves from the rebellion, from the false teaching. The illustration that he, that he gives us then is the illustration of honorable vessels. Honorable vessels. And the passage in verse 20 says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. In order for us to break that down, let me, let me first of all, let's, let's define a couple of terms again. And, and just so you know, this is not, I told the first service, um, this is not the way I'm uh, used to doing my study, but I intentionally did word studies because I know Lynn does word studies. And, um, and, and it's not because I'm trying to be like Lynn, because I'm not. I'm John, and, and I'm, I'm going to be John. Uh, but it's because I, one of the things I greatly appreciate about Lynn's preaching is that he does this. Because when he looks up the terms in the Greek, and he tells you what the Greek terms say, or what the Hebrew terms in the Old Testament say, when he tells you what the text literally says, there's no question, there's no question whose word it is. It's not, thus saith Lynn Parsons, it's thus saith the Lord. And that's the whole point of a preacher's job, and that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Preach the word, preach the word, uncompromising, and don't stand for false teaching. So the best way to make sure that we're accurate is make sure we're going to the text uh, with a correct approach. So the, the word great there in the Greek is megas. Mega, really, really big, Right? Not just large, not just great, huge, magnificent, surprising, splendid, prepared on a grand scale, stately. It's important. So a great house is a reference to like a rich person's house or the king's castle or the white house or something along those lines. A great house, the house of someone really important. And the vessel... The word vessel there could be used to reference containers, utensils, implements, tools, household items, um, or used uh, to represent a chosen instrument or any kind of goods or merchandise. And so when he talks about vessels, it's kind of a broad term. It basically, the articles of the house. There are items in the house that are honorable and items in the house that are dishonorable. And he says the honorable items are things of like gold and silver. Let's show you some pictures of gold and silver items. Here is a gold picture of some sort from biblical times. This is um, an example of something that he might be referring to. Uh, and then here's a silver bowl from biblical times. So these are items that are ornate. They could be decorative. They can also have a, a, a usefulness to them. And um, they are things that you wouldn't mind having on display for your company. It's like putting out your fine china. Honorable, right? And then here are the vessels of wood and clay. Uh, there's a clay pot and a wooden bowl or cup of some sort. And these are examples of some other vessels. Now, what we know about things like this is wood and clay would break a whole lot easier than gold or silver, silver right? Wood and clay, uh, you know, uh, gold and silver, uh, you know, they, sure they could tarnish, but they could be clean, cleaned, right? Uh, but clay, um, you you know, with clay and wood, you could have a growth of some sort occur. You could have mold and mildew, and in, in, uh, you could have musty pots, right? Um, if you ever, if you work any, anywhere in the health health uh, inspection uh, arena, when I was in college, there was a restaurant I loved to go to. They had wooden plates, and I remember I, I never thought anything of it. I just thought this is the greatest food I've ever eaten in my life, and. Uh, and I remember the day that they stopped using the wooden plates and they brought out these porcelain dishes. I was like, man, well, that's, that's, it's not the same. Didn't have the same vibe. And I was talking to somebody. They said, that's a, that was probably a health code thing. Because <laughs> wooden plates, washing wooden plates after a long period of time, that's not, not a good uh, health uh, situation there. So these are things that, if you think of it back in that time period, they would be to some degree, not, not immediately disposable like paper plates and plastic for us, but, but on some scale, they would be things that eventually you'd stop using them. You'd replace them, right? And so um, this is the illustration he gives. Well, why is this important? Uh, let's talk about the words honorable and dishonorable. Honorable in the Greek 
Uh, Timae means properly perceived value, worth, price, or weight, or value willingly assigned to something. So we have the idea of an honorable vessel being a valuable vessel. Valuable. Okay, and then dishonorable also can have the the lack of value um, perceived as without recognized value or worth, but it can also mean disgrace, dishonor, um, could mean common, reproach, shame, vile. And so we have wood and clay as vessels that are common, right? I mean, just about everybody could have vessels of wood and clay, but not everybody could have gold and silver. Um, but the the illustration goes beyond that, and it goes to the idea of Disgrace. Let me show you another picture. Anybody know what that is? Huh? What? Chamber pot. That's exactly what it is. Anybody know what a chamber pot is? Evidently, somebody does. Yeah, it's old school toilet. You put it by the bed, and in the middle of the night, you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing, they didn't have indoor bathrooms. You put it by the bed in the middle of the night. If you need to use the bathroom, you go to the pot, you sit on the pot, you do your business, and you go back to bed. Well, there's a peak. Okay. So this is, uh, this is a chamber pot. Now, ask yourself this question. Now, when you think of the word dishonorable and you think of disgrace and shame and vile and all those kinds of words. Now, dishonorable takes on a new meaning, right? Now it's not just a lack of value, but it's, it's more than a lack of value. It, it's, it's for a dishonorable use. It's for a shameful use. You wouldn't pull your chamber pot out and show it to your highly regarded guests. Oh, look at my chamber pot, right? You, would, you might show off you might show off your gold and silver, but you wouldn't show off your, your chamber pot. Um, now, Tommy said earlier uh, from, from first service, he said, you would if they needed to use it. And I said, actually, no, you probably wouldn't. They would go somewhere else. They wouldn't use your chamber pot. That's in your bedroom. And so um, this is a dishonorable vessel. Let's look at the analogy a little further. So um, the house in this analogy is the church. This is like a parable. The house is the church. The master of the house is Jesus, and the vessels are those inside the church. And there's three primary distinctions between honorable and dishonorable vessels. We've kind of hit on all of them, but we'll just outline them real quick. One is their material substance. You have items that are perishable, wood and clay, and items that are imperishable, gold and silver. Number two is their use. The usage reflects the value in the eyes of the master of the home. And we've already talked about how the use makes it honorable or dishonorable. And number three, their ultimate destiny. The vessels of wood and clay would eventually be discarded or destroyed. The vessels of gold and silver would be kept and seen as valuable long after. So we have these three things that distinguish honorable and dishonorable vessels. Let's take that and apply it to the spiritual context for a moment. Paul says, in the house, the church, there are vessels that are honorable and dishonorable There are people who are useful to the master and people who are not useful to the master. Go back to those three things real quick. What's the difference, spiritually speaking, of perishable and imperishable? Which one are the children of God? Imperishable. We have been raised to new life. Our our life is through Jesus. We cannot lose it. Right? We cannot lose it. Um... They may kill our bodies, our souls will live eternally in the presence of God. But what happens likewise to those who are not of Christ? They perish. Number two, their their use. We talk about being valuable in the eyes of the master. Those who are walking in wickedness are not valuable to the master. Those who are walking in righteousness are. And then number three, ultimate destiny, just as we talked about in the first one, the, um, the end result, eventually discarded and destroyed are the dishonorable items, but cherished and valued for eternity are those that are honorable. And so we have those comparisons. Look at um, 
You can look at the next slide. Paul says both honorable and dishonorable vessels exist inside the church and the false teachers are like dishonorable vessels. He's not pulling any punches here. He says, these people are going to hell. They're from the devil and they're in your midst. Don't name any names, but just think, have you ever been in a church where you felt like that? There's some people in this church, they are straight up from the devil. <laughs> Those people are not from Jesus. And, um, you know, Paul says they're, they're in your midst and, and uh, you need to be on guard. He exhorts Timothy to make sure that he's an honorable vessel and to take on the task of producing honorable vessels in the church. Uh, look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, here's, here's something that I think is interesting. I'm going to read this again. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, Brother, you cannot clean your chamber pot well enough for me to serve food in it. I promise you that. What in the world is Paul talking about? If he cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use. Can you change clay to gold? No. By washing it? No. Can you change wood to silver by washing it? No. Only God could do that. Only God can make a vessel from clay or wood into a vessel of gold or silver, silver. Only God can make something that's dishonorable into something that's honorable. And so when Paul's talking about this here, there's a, there's a spiritual context. If we are to be cleansed from what is dishonorable, this tells us that being an honorable vessel requires us to make a change. A change of mind, a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of heart, change of attitude. What churchy word does that sound like? Okay, sanctification close. Repentance. A change of... Now, repentance, if you recall, you may or may not know this, but repentance was a military term. It was the same idea as an about face. I was headed this way. I was a dishonorable vessel. Changed my direction. Changed my mind. Changed my attitude. Changed my behavior. Go this way. Repentance. It requires an act on our part. Now we know, we understand that it's the blood of Jesus that makes us acceptable to God, not our works. But here's what I want to challenge you with on this one. If we have no motivation or sense of responsibility... Um, to initiate this sort of change or and by responding to the word and making changes in the areas of our life that, that uh, are dishonorable to God, then we show arrogance. We show a lack of gratitude for what God has done for us and who he is. And we resemble more the prodigal son before his conversion than after. And if we don't have that attitude uh, that change in attitude, that repentance, then, then the reality is we're not his children. Becoming a child of God requires our repentance. Um, repentance, this is one way that, that I uh, would define it for you. I would say if you repent, you renounce the things of this world, you cling to the things of Christ, you fall on the mercy of the living God and you don't look back. Likewise, if that's the case, we need to challenge ourselves with this thought. If I read something in God's word that I don't like or I don't agree with, the word of God's not the one that needs to change. It's me that needs to change. And if we don't have that straight, then we're not walking as honorable vessels. We're not walking with him. And we have committed... Um, Blasphemy. We have committed idolatry. We have said, I'm God. 
Because what I say, and we may not say those words, but what we've said is my thoughts about what is right and wrong are what's most important or what's paramount. And, I, and I'll be honest with you guys, when I, when I think about it like that, I, I'm convicted because I realize I often operate as if what I think about a situation is what's right or wrong. And, and sometimes we need that reminder to go back and say, hmm, yeah, that's what I think, but that's not necessarily what God said. So if we read uh, something in God's word, we are the ones that need to change. The action that we're supposed to take here, according to Paul, is to set ourselves apart in two ways. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're, we're told the first thing we need to do is set ourselves apart in personal conduct. personal conduct and specifically he gives us things to avoid and things to do and so the thing we're supposed to avoid here in this passage is youthful lusts now we tend to think of lust as having one connotation one one meaning uh, in the physical sense but if you look here in the greek the word lust refers to desire passionate longing eagerness for strong feelings or urges impulsivity and longing and those things can be applied to all kinds of stuff they're not just necessarily physical in nature and then the um, the word youthful in the greek is the same term as juvenile or peculiar to the age of youth so instead of just referring to uh, sensual desire or physical appetite this statement also includes the idea of the lust for money for power for fame, for recognition, for pleasure. Um, it represents the idea of self-will, impatience, pride, even the idea of making light of serious matters. General, immature behavior. And literally, you could translate it as juvenile impulses, urges, and feelings. So if you think of it in that context, then this idea of youthful lust really points to the idea of we need to grow up, in so many words. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the famous love chapter. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And Paul says to Timothy, it's time to grow up. Turn away from childish juvenile longings and urges. Stop seeking your own reward and seek the things of God. So the second part of this is that we are to do some things. We're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, that word pursue in the Greek means to aggressively chase, like a hunter pursuing a catch or an athlete pursuing a prize, earnestly desiring to overtake or apprehend, pursue with all haste to press on, implying difficulty and hardship in the process. To pursue, to aggressively chase. Paul used other um, illustrations, other analogies in the book of 2 Timothy, prior to where we picked up in the reading, one of the things he tells Timothy to do is to press on like a good athlete. An athlete trains hard and he works to, for the prize and he finishes the race because you can't win if you don't finish. And he tells him to be a good soldier for Christ and a good soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs, but he does the will of his commanding officer. So Paul uses all these analogies and he, and he talks about this idea of pursuing aggressively. And what does he say we're supposed to pursue aggressively? Faith, love, and peace, and righteousness. And that word love there is the word agape in the Greek. That's the, um, you, you know, that God kind of love, right? The unconditional love. And so he says we're supposed to chase aggressively that kind of love. And I don't know about you guys, and there's a lot of great churches out there, but you know, we're flawed people. 
We're flawed people. And if you've, been, if you've been in church for any length of time and you haven't experienced a scenario where you felt like the people in, in the church were more hurtful than the people outside the church, then you haven't been in church very long. Because it happens everywhere. God forbid it should happen here, but it does happen. And it happens often. And it's not because churches are evil. It's because we are wicked people, and that's why we need the gospel. But Paul tells Timothy, he said, aggressively chase that kind of love for one another. Aggressively chase after righteousness in your own life. Aggressively chase after faith and peace. We're to do that striving. That's another word you could use. Fighting hard against the, 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 the things that would stand in our way and the hurts and the pains of life. Aggressively chase after those things. In uh, verse 23, he says, having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the second way we're supposed to be set apart is in personal relations or relationships. His specific statement was, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies because they breed quarrels. So the thing to avoid is foolish or ignorant controversies and quarrels. So we're going to look at those words in the Greek real quick. Foolish is morose. This is where we get the word moron. Stupid, dull, um, mentally inert. It means there's no activity going on up there. Brainless, nonsensical, lacking a grip on reality. Um, Useless, empty. So foolishness is basically being stupid. Use your brain, right? Um, Ignorant is a nicer word. You know, we tend to think of ignorant as a synonym for uh, stupid or unintelligent. It doesn't mean those things. What it means is that you're uninstructed, untrained, uneducated. You just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. If you ask me to work on a diesel engine, I would have to say I'm ignorant. I'm not a diesel mechanic. But if you ask me how to play the guitar, I could say I know how to do that. I'm not uninformed on that, but I am uninformed on other things. And Paul says there are, some of these things are just stupidness. Some of these things are people being idiots. And some of these things are people just being uninformed people. And you're going to deal with both. And he says, avoid those things regardless. Avoid the quarrels and the controversies. Let's look at what those words mean. Controversies is speculations, questioning, debates, meaningless, uh, a meaningless question to investigate a specific practice or principle. And quarrels uh, refers to fighting or strife contention, battles, dispute. And so Paul says, look, some of these things are going to be idiotic fights and some of them are going to be controversies based on people who just are uninformed. And he says, avoid getting entangled in either of those things. Your job is not to argue with people and try to convince them. Your job is to tell the truth and speak the truth clearly and in love. Contradict the lies but don't get entangled in the controversies and the quarrels. That's really important for a pastor. And it's hard to do sometimes. There's a lot of, look, there's a lot of false teaching right now in the church. Watch Christian television for an hour and you'll find out. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's being taught that's just not biblical. Some of it falls back to heretical doctrines. And, and I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not going to name names, but there's several people I can name for you right now that have huge ministries all over television and radio, books and CDs and the internet and national conferences and international conferences who teach that you can be saved by following the light that you have. In other words, you could be saved without Jesus. Hello, Christians. Hello, is this heresy or orthodoxy? It's heresy. 
Have nothing to do with it. Speak the truth. Speak it clearly. Speak it in love. But have, don't entangle yourself in quarrels with those people. Some of them are foolish and some of them are just ignorant. The ones who are ignorant can be corrected. The ones who are foolish will not listen. That's what the Proverbs say. A fool returns to his own vomit. You can't convince a fool, but somebody who's uninformed can be informed. And so Paul tells Timothy, this is your job. Verses 15 through 18, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth and avoid all these things. And I'm going to skip down. He says, um, he talks about uh, the fact that it leads to more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Okay, well, what does gangrene mean in the Greek? It means gangrene. (laughs) It's an eating sore, a mortification. It comes from the word grao, which means to gnaw. It's a disease that literally gnaws away at the flesh and even gnaws away at the bone. And Paul said, false teaching that is allowed to remain will fester and it will eat away at the core of the church and the core of the gospel if you don't address it. It's a disease and it is not a little thing. It's a serious thing that if left alone and not addressed will destroy the body, deal with it and nip it in the bud. It's like a cancer in the church. Paul says, nip it in the bud. Like Barney Fife. Uh, Paul's talking about pastoral authority. That's why he references the rebellion of Korah. That's why he talks about Moses and his authority and what God has ordained. Um, Teaching the full counsel of the word of God and correct doctrine and theology is the only cure and the only prevention for such a cancer as false teaching. And that's the job of the pastor. Um, Paul had already warned Timothy and the other elders at the church of Ephesus about 10 years prior in that passage that we read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. If you go back, um, let's go to verse 28. I know we've got more of it up there, but let's just skip to it. Yeah. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now listen, if you don't think that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul, <laughs> I mean, he, he in Acts chapter 20 told them, I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to be in prison every town I go into. I'm going to suffer for the gospel. And then I'm going to die And there's going to be wolves that come in and try to tear up the church. Guard against it. What do you do with a wolf, guys? You shoot it. You shoot it. Now, there are unintentioned... uh, There's a book that came out years ago for pastors called Unintentioned Dragons. Talking about people that caused up... uh, Stirred up strife in the church and caused problems that meant well, um, but were misinformed or ignorant, right? But then there's people who are teaching heresy, who are foolish, And they don't regard the word of God as the ultimate authority. And he says, look, you need to be on the lookout and you don't play. You you, you take care of it. You shoot them. You shoot them. I mean, not literally, (laughs) not literally, but figuratively, you just, you, you deal with it. You deal with it instantly and directly. Um, This is the charge that scripture gives us concerning our response to pastoral leadership. Knowing if, knowing that that is the role of the pastor, here's how we're to respond. Paul said in Hebrews 13, he said, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are, uh, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me say this about pastoral leadership. Pastoral leadership is not about being in charge. It's about being responsible and about being accountable to the word of God. And I have been in places before, and some of you have too, um, where I can say that I believe that uh, the, the senior pastor of the church uh, started out uh, well-intentioned and, and trying to grow the church biblically. And at some point, we began to believe our own hype. 
And what happened is we stopped focusing on building people for God's kingdom and started focusing on building kingdoms for God's people. And there's a big difference, people. And when we start building kingdoms from God's people, the focus then is not on, am I going to be accountable, but death to anyone who challenges my authority. So let me give you a little test. You need to ask yourself this question. Can I trust the heart of my shepherd? See, there are, pastors aren't always right. Pastors make mistakes too. Pastors learn things too. I learned a lot preparing for the sermon this week. But that's not the same thing as someone whose heart is in the wrong place. And so my question for you is, can you trust the heart of your shepherd? It doesn't matter if it's day three church or any other church. You need to ask yourself that question because if you can't answer it instantly with a resounding yes, you better run, 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 aggressively chase something different. Because if you can't trust the heart of that pastor, you are going to walk into a situation where somebody's focused on building their own kingdom one day. One thing that I can tell you that I greatly appreciate about Lynn after coming from where I came from and seeing some of the things I saw, there have been times, I'm going to tell you, I've been an imperfect pastor and an imperfect employee. And there have been times when I have been angry, when I have been overly aggressive in a meeting. Sometimes I don't even realize it. There have been times that I've not handled myself very well because internally I was responding to a lot of things that I had experienced and fought against. And I can tell you of all those times that I failed and all those times I didn't handle myself in a pastoral way, Lynn responded to me in love and sensitivity and respect. And he didn't tell me, you're out of line don't question. He listened. And he said, maybe there's something that I need to hear. Even when the problem was me. So Lynn's not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect pastor. Daryl's not a perfect pastor. But I can tell you this. When I ask that question, my answer is yes. Absolutely. My answer is yes. And if you can trust the heart of your pastor, then you better just wait for God to teach you something and be ready to receive it when he does. But if you can't say that, you better get out of Dodge. Paul said to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Have you noticed that with the things to avoid, there's always been one thing to avoid and a bunch of stuff to do? All right, in the last example, that's what's happening here. Things to do. We're to be kind, gentle, mild, referring to calming words that bring order to a situation. Lynn's good at that. I'm not. (laughs) Calming words that bring order. Um, The second thing is able to teach didacticos is where we get the English word didactic. It means apt at teaching or skillful in teaching, but it also has a double meaning in this passage. It also means the virtue which renders one teachable. So when Paul tells Timothy, you need to be didacticos, he says, you must be able to teach and able to be taught. Need to be teachable as well. And then um, also... Patiently enduring evil. In the Greek, this is one word. It's a compound word. It's the quality of patiently affirming a belief in the face of mockery. It comes from uh, the, a Greek word anexomai, which means to bear up, and kakos, which means malice or evil. So it's the quality of enduring hardship, um, especially when harmed or treated unjustly, or being patient when wronged. That's the King James word, uh, long-suffering, right? 
And that's why people say, don't, don't pray for patience. It's long suffering. Uh, correct with gentleness is the next thing we're supposed to do. Meekness, humility, and mildness. Mildness. Here's the, um, here's the part about that. This is derived from the root pra, which emphasizes the divine origin of this. So this is a, this is a supernatural God given strength, this divinely balanced virtue that can only come through faith, uh, imparted by God. So pastors have a tough job with this and then, um, correct. Uh, this is the word, um, where we get our English term pedagogue or pedagogy. When I was an ed major, uh, in college, we heard the word pedagogy. It was a buzzword that we heard daily and it was about how you teach. Um, when the teacher's exam, we had to, we had a, a portion of the teacher's exam that was a, it was a whole separate test on pedagogy. They'd say, here's what you are instructed to teach for today. Write out your lesson plan and explain how you would teach it. Um, has to do with your strategy for teaching. Um, so uh, in the English, that is. And so this word uh, requires necessary discipline, which includes administering punishment. In this passage, it means to chastise with words for the purpose of molding the character of others through reproof and admonition. Now, I don't know if you've... Listen, this sounds like a loving father to me. And if, if you've ever had to do this with your kids, imagine doing it with adults who don't have to listen to you. <laughs> right? We just leave churches. We don't like what you said. I, I can tell you there's nothing more sad. I've, 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 I've done this over the years, all the years I've been in ministry, pastoral ministry. I have, I've had numerous opportunities to, have, uh, to meet with people for marriage counseling. And one of the saddest things I've ever seen, and it, and it happened, uh, honestly, if you need marriage counseling, don't come to me. I have a 0% success rate <laughs> at helping couples. But here's why. A, a good friend of mine who is a pastor and a, um, and a uh, counselor professionally, he's a counselor uh, by day, he's bivocational. Um, and so uh, he said, he said, John, the reason that happens is because in 99.9% of the situations, by the time people decide to go to counseling, one or both of them have already made up their mind about their, the fact that they are exiting the relationship. And so when they go, it's their last-ditch effort to say, we did everything, we even tried counseling. Because one or both of them have already made up their mind. Now, what that translates to in, in day-to-day activity as a pastor is, I have sat with people many times, and, and as I listen to the situation, I go, seems to me like your issue is here. And they say, you're exactly right. What do we do about it? And then you lay out a biblical plan for them to apply to deal with that situation. And you say, we'll meet back in two weeks. They come back in two weeks. Let's hear how things are going. Same arguments, same problems, same discussion. And we go, we said last time your issue was here. Do you still think that's your issue? Yes. What have you done about it in the last two weeks? Nothing. Okay, we're going to do this. This next two weeks, we'll meet again. Come back, same situation. Do you know in all of my years of pastoral counseling, I've only had one person, not one couple, one person who's actually done what they were told to do. I had a man that actually, I, I, I came to him one day and in a loving pastoral way, um, I said to him in private, I said, what are you doing? This is stupid. I mean, you realize you said this in the counseling session and now you're doing this. You're sabotaging any progress you could make on your marriage. You need to change this. And I gave him X, Y, Z, do this and do it now. And he did. He's the only person that ever did that. But you know what? For all of his effort, you cannot choose for the other person. And so this is what happens. This is the job though. Paul tells Timothy as a pastor, you have to do this. You have to approach it that way. Um, and look at the reasoning why. This is, I love the heart of Paul. He says in uh, verse 25, Timothy, you have to do this. You have to correct people and you have to do it lovingly and gentleness and all that uh, because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the devil's snare. Now, Paul's heart was restoration, even for the false teachers. Paul's heart was repentance, even for those who were 
intentionally causing harm and disunity. Paul's heart was that all would come to repentance. The result, if we do these things, is that we'll be useful to the master. We'll be honorable vessels. Set apart as holy. There's that phrase from our series, set apart. And I realize we're over, and I apologize, folks. Um, I don't do this often enough to know how to be brief. So, and, and I'll tell you... And I'll tell you this, I, I, the lady who discipled me, uh, she was about 80 years old and I was about 17. And uh, she said, John, you have the gift of continuance. <laughs> I, I figured out years later what that meant. So <laughs> anyway, I was ignorant. Um, so, uh, but he says, you'll be useful to the master, um, set apart as holy. Um, You know, we said before, clay pots can't be turned to gold by being washed. It's a transformation that only God can do. And so if God uh, works repentance into someone's life, a false teacher or not, um, they can become an honorable vessel. And this, this concept that Paul gives to Timothy is directed to pastors, but it can be extended into all areas of life for every believer because leadership comes down to one word, and that's influence. And see, everybody in this room has influence somewhere. There's some relationship, some arena, some avenue where you have an opportunity to influence people. And so you need to ask yourself the question, where do I have influence, first of all? And then second of all, what am I doing with that influence to lead people closer to God? I mean, maybe maybe there's somebody uh, that God has put you in this particular position to, to minister to, and you haven't, you haven't taken that into consideration. Um, maybe, maybe there's someone who has a, a, a false understanding of the gospel or someone who um, is preaching heresy even maybe, uh, and you need, you need to be there to, to be the voice of truth. Um, we need to ask ourselves if we're uh, being seen as set apart is our conduct and our, the way we handle ourselves in relationships, does it, does it reflect what Paul's taught here to Timothy? Or are we just going along with, uh, with what's happening, uh, like, like boats with no rudder, you know, tossed around on the waves? And the question for us this morning is, what's keeping me from honorable use for the Lord's purposes? So this morning as the band comes out, we're going to have an invitation and give you an opportunity to respond. And I know that um, if you're like me, you, you probably see a multitude of areas that God could improve in your life. And um, maybe, things that, um, maybe things you don't even really want to talk about or acknowledge to yourself, let alone anybody else. Uh, but I'll say God is faithful. And, and we need to... Um, we need to ask ourselves what, what area of our life needs to be addressed today. What does God want to do in me? How can I be more useful to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, first of all, that you desire to use us um, as imperfect and unholy as we are. And I have no business up here. I feel like I'm more aware of my failures than I am my successes when it comes to pleasing you. And if I feel that way, Lord, I know there's others that do as well. But Father, we we need your cleansing this morning. We need you to, to... cleanse us in a supernatural way so that we can move from clay and wood to gold and silver from something perishable to something imperishable that we'd be usable for you so Father whoever's here and whatever they're dealing with if they they need to confess something or if they need to repent Father if they uh, if they need prayer whatever way that you would have them respond this morning whatever way you're speaking to I pray Lord we'd be receptive to that Maybe, Lord, there's somebody in here who doesn't know you, who's never surrendered their life to Christ. And they're realizing that they need to be cleansed this morning. 
that they can't live a righteous life on their own and that they need Christ. Father, I pray that they would surrender their heart, their life, their will to Jesus this morning. Fall at the foot of the cross and be washed by the blood of the Lamb. It takes away the sins of the world. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.